0: and hello there peter mansbridge here you are just moments away from the latest episode of the bridge it's like living in a different century we go to ukraine for the latest well it's a long way from stratford ontario where i am today kicking off a new week in the peaceful surroundings of southwestern Ontario. It's a long way from here to Ukraine, and specifically on this day to the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. We're going to talk to Susan Ormiston, one of the many western correspondents working in Ukraine, trying to tell the world the story of the Russian invasion. Susan, of course, works for the CBC and is a longtime colleague of mine. We'll go to Susan in a second. But I do want to tell everybody, it's Monday, and you know what Mondays means on the bridge. For the last couple of years, Mondays has meant the latest kind of situation on the pandemic, on COVID. And we'll be true to that, as we always are on Mondays. Uh, Dr. Lisa Barrett will join us in about 15 minutes. And Dr. Barrett will talk about where we are today today. It's hard to think of the pandemic, it's hard to think of COVID-19 when we're so focused on the Ukraine story. But things have been happening fairly quickly over the last few weeks, and hopefully that pattern will continue and Dr. Barrett will talk about that in a couple of minutes. But we start in Ukraine. As I said, Susan Ormiston is a friend and colleague of mine. We've worked together for long time, 30, 35 years. And um, Susan is in Ukraine, part of the CBC team, part of a group of international journalists, many international journalists who are inside Ukraine telling this absolutely gut-wrenching, depressing story of the Russian invasion and what appears to be a planned slaughter of civilians that's been taking place. And we've seen some horrific images in these last few days. Susan and her team have been out covering this story. She's no stranger to Ukraine, having been there a number of times. And she's no stranger to war coverage. And as a result, she's learned many things about how to deal with the story. And that's what I want to get at in my conversation with her. So let's, uh, let's get right to it. As I said, Susan, um, it's a early evening uh, now in uh, Ukraine and she was out for most of this day covering the story in Lviv. So let's, um, let's catch up with Susan and, get a sense of what she's witnessing, both on the ground. Well, I'll let her tell the story. Here we go. Susan, tell me um, where you are and what you've seen today.
1: Oh gosh! Well, in Lviv, which is the westernmost city in Ukraine, relatively safe for now, Peter. And a lot of the humanitarian aid is now coming through here. We're expecting a convoy of UN trucks. But really, this has become an unbelievable hub for refugees. Hundreds of thousands of refugees are flocking here from other parts in Ukraine, either transition transiting through here to other countries like Poland, or staying here trying to, you know, gauge whether the war is going to come this far west or how bad it is, but it's just been a phenomenal exodus of people, and the city is trying to cope with this influx of refugees. The train station is absolutely bursting Uh, with people. Every day you go, there are more and more. In fact, on the weekend, the statistics showed that it was the largest, the day with the most refugees crossing over into Poland since the war began. So my assessment of that, Peter, is that as the bombing intensifies in East and Southern Ukraine, people who thought maybe they could wait it out or thought that their village would be safe are giving up and they are fleeing.
0: You know, when we watch these uh, incredible images you, and we listen to the uh, Ukrainian people, there's this mixture of uh, despair and resolve. Um, and that's what we see from here. What what do you see on the ground?
1: A lot of heartache, um, particularly around separation, Peter, because women and children are leaving and they're leaving their men behind. It's epic. So many women have cried when I said how tough was the decision. It was leaving half their family here and not knowing whether when they would come back and whether their loved ones will survive. I mean, they have a a mandatory mobilization here. So men of fighting age 18 to 60 cannot leave the country. Um, They haven't called up all uh, Ukrainian men, but it's a possibility. So these separations at the train stations and at the borders are just heartbreaking. So we're seeing a lot of that. We are too seeing the uh, beginnings of a new resistance. You know, I reflected that you and I talked in 2014 after I spent so much time in Ukraine, uh, the revolution there. They toppled the president, and then Crimea was invaded by Russia, and. The people on the square then, eight years ago in Maidan, were many of them were young Ukrainians, you know, filled with this fervor that they could depose this uh, Soviet-backed uh, Russian-backed president, and they did. And I talked to young people the other day who said, "We feel like this is a new Maidan. We feel like this is a new resistance growing." The other thing that's given them a lot of um, oxygen is, you know, they'll say to us you in the West thought that we would fold within days that under Russian bombardment and the strength of the Russian military, Ukraine would simply dissolve within days. Well, it hasn't, you know, we're into two weeks now and we're still standing. And I think that's given a lot of uh, power to people who are resisting this war and determined to fight it, that they have a chance. They have the world's attention and they have a chance. They need a lot more support, which you've been hearing about, you know, Uh, the air support, uh, military's support. But they do uh, have a sense that something is building here. We talked to the mayor of Lviv. He described it as a new Ukraine. And when I said, what does that mean? He said, it's a bright light. He said, at the end of this all, we will have a a stronger country full of people who are uh, very um, taken with this idea of Ukraine as a strong, independent, democratic European facing country.
0: do they do they realize that they have uh, the world's um, the world is standing beside them or behind them, or with them, on this? I mean, even Japan today uh, came out in support of, of Ukraine and said it was going to start sending things. Now Japan and Germany have, had, as you well know, have had a history of, of staying out of these things, but they're in on this, and so is everybody else, to a degree, you mentioned the no-fly zone issue. Does this come up with ordinary people that, you know, we know you support us, but, hey, where are your troops?
1: All the time, to a person. Uh, you know, they're grateful, but they're also angry. And each day that we see the atrocities like we did on the weekend uh, in uh, uh, in European with those civilians being struck by a mortar crossing a street. I mean, it's, it's getting worse. So there's a sense of, We know the world is with us. We know the West is watching, but you're letting us fight on our own. We need more help. We need helmets. We need armored uh, plates in our uh, flak jackets. Uh, We need aid, of course, but what we really need are fighter jets and we need you to close uh, the airspace so that they can't attack us from the air. Um, yeah, people, ordinary people who are traveling out of this country tell us that all the time. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a mantra.
0: You mentioned earlier that, uh, the, you know, you've been in Ukraine before and you've seen some difficult things, not only in that country, but in other countries where you've covered, um, you know, uh, to say the least, difficult situations. Is this unlike anything else you've covered?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, it feels like it's from another century because of the massive humanitarian exodus. It, you know, I was standing at the Lviv train station the other day, Peter, and I was looking at those old Soviet-looking trains, you know, their old-style train cars, and I saw these people with creases in their faces and worry and, you know, bags of belongings, and I thought I was transported to another era um it has that feel about it also that you know in many wars recently we haven't seen as much conventional warfare you know we're seeing a resurgence of this type of warfare with tanks and bombs and uh, grenades and you know one force moving down a road facing another force it's um it's it's very real uh, here, and it has a different feeling from the war, for example, that we saw in Afghanistan uh, over the last twenty years, and some of the other Middle Eastern wars that that we've experienced. It, it it does have a very different feeling, and and a very scary one.
0: Talk about that, because I I you know I get a lot of mail about asking. How do correspondents cover something like this? Uh, you know, they must get scared when they're seeing what they're seeing and they're involved in the middle of all this. Um, how do you, it's not a distance, you can't get distance, but how do you deal with it? I mean, you've seen a lot of stuff, Susan, in, in your career. I mean, how do you deal with this?
1: Yeah, you know, I think um, for the CBC anyway, We've had to make some tough decisions about risk, um, moving our teams uh, away from a situation that could become extremely difficult and where they could get trapped. Uh, the, the challenge with that is you; it's very difficult to cover the worst of the war when you can't be close to it. But a lot of people 10 days ago believed that Russia would move in and would more quickly encircle some of the key areas like Kiev, for example. Uh, So we had to make determinations on that. So we're a little too distant from uh, the worst of the fighting at the moment. Uh, And I'm hoping that we can find ways to get closer to the people who are suffering from it um, but it's a, you know, it's just uncertain. Um, you don't. It's very hard to determine where the war is going next, and how severe is the risk. I can tell you, sitting in my hotel room in Lviv the other night at four in the morning, our time, when that nuclear plant. Uh, caught fire. I really started to think about okay, what's our risk mitigation here? We we hadn't anticipated that. Uh, what do we do next? So it's a daily assessment of of managing the risk. Um, and you know, I mean, on the other side of it, it's uh, as I've said, I've said to you many times. I feel totally, completely privileged to be able to. Um, cover stories uh, like this, where you know things things are turning on these massive historical events, and people are turning to us for understanding. But also, they're turning to us in Ukraine. They want to get the word out. There's been almost no hostility toward the media, which is different in, as we've experienced in other wars as well. Ukrainians know that. They need to keep this, um, top, this war elevated in the public consciousness. And they understand that the media, the Western media, is, is part of their power. And so they're very welcoming to have us tell parts of the story that indicate their, their suffering and, and, and their misery going through this
0: you know one of the ways we obviously follow this story is not only from hearing from people like you but witnessing the pictures and the pictures have been really quite remarkable uh one of the ways i followed is I, i i follow people's instagram posts including yours and i want to talk just briefly about two particular shots that i've seen on your your instagram feed in the last little while that 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 say volumes, on the one hand, it, there's this picture of this elderly woman in um, in the train that you took at the station and you've taken, you know, through a window and you can just see her, you know, contemplating her life and her situation. Um, that image uh, is remarkable. And the other one in, in a contrasting way is, I guess you, you had a chance to have supper at some point and it was just a dish of pierogies.
1: And I don't think I've
0: ever, I don't think I've ever read so much into a dish of pierogies before, which I love. And, you know, anybody who ever has pierogies loves. Um, But the contrast between those two images is, is quite something.
1: Well, uh, yes, pictures have stories, don't they? Backstories. Um, those were delicious pierogies and it was my first meal in about six days, like not meal in that we hadn't eaten, but sitting down and having something hot, uh, in a place where you could pause for a moment and eat pierogies. And it was, um, sort of, uh, uh, promoted by my sister-in-law who is a a Ukrainian-Canadian back in Saskatchewan. And she wrote me and said, I'll bet the pierogies are really good over there. Stay safe. (laughs) So indeed, I posted that in part to tell her, yes, indeed, they are. Um, And uh, the picture in the train station, yes. um, That's what I talked about before, Peter, is that image, it could transport you back to other wars in Europe. You know, her face creased with worry and um, being of an age that she's lived through a lot of conflict in this part of the world. And she's leaving again, probably, uh, and not knowing uh, when she'll be back. And, you know, not that it matters at all, but that day at the train station and the day of pierogies was my birthday. So I'll never forget it. You know, I'll never forget being at that train station uh, surrounded by this human odyssey seeing these people um you know torn uh by leaving and uh recognizing what was happening and the other thing i'll say about that train station obviously it affected me deeply is i saw a couple of men peter one man came i was watching out of the corner of my eye he came up the steps with a four-year-old in his arms and he was looking kind of around he looked exhausted And uh, I eventually talked to him as he tried to get his documents to the conductor or the, the border patrol and tried to get on the train and they rejected him. Why? Because he's a fighting age. And he told me his wife was in hospital in Kharkiv and he had brought their son to Lviv a long way to get him out to safety. But he couldn't. They wouldn't let him get on with that kid. I saw another couple probably in their 30s try to get on the train, man and woman. And he couldn't get on. And I I didn't understand their Ukrainian, but I could see in her eyes, he turned to her, looked at her, asked her something, which I presume was, will you go? And she nodded, no, very, very quietly and just looked at him. And I just thought, wow, everyone is going through hell.
0: Mm. Um, Last question i mean we've known each other for a long time and one of the things i've always uh, admired about you uh, to a fault is that you want to be there wherever the there is you want to be at the story you're you're driven to be there whatever it is whether it was meech lake or whether it's the, the war in uh, in ukraine you you want to be there what drives susan armiston
1: hmm well, um, I, I I don't know. I, I just know that when I'm sitting comfortably in North America, and this has happened a lot of times, uh, having, uh, you know, enjoying my life, live in Washington now, and I see something like this developing, it's my only passion is to get there and to try to tell stories and interpret them for Canadians. And I don't know where that comes from. It's, it's maybe, uh, you know, I don't want to be left out. Uh, I just want to, uh, cover this. Um, but it also comes from now years of experience doing this kind of reporting. I call it, you know, you're on the sharp end of a spear. Um, people are, this is life and death. You know, there's no question, uh, people do not know what's going to happen in the next hour. And as a storyteller, it's very compelling. And I think what makes this story here in Ukraine so significant for us as Canadians is, as I described in, in, on the prairies, you know, there's a huge connection with Canadians. I've had people contact me that I haven't heard from in 20 years. Um, you know, I, I, It feels in that way like the Haiti earthquake, where people were so engaged in it. They wanted to help. Um, It's been a very um, interactive experience as a Canadian working here in Ukraine uh, and telling the story back home. And it's been very rewarding for us to know that people are really tuned in to what we're trying to do here.
0: And tuned in, they are. I mean, and it's people like you are allowing them to understand as best you can what is happening there on the ground and and what the stakes are not only in the big picture but on individual basis like that woman on the train or that fellow you met in the train station uh and his family so listen um you know it's it's obvious that we want you to stay safe in a difficult situation and to take care of yourself uh but i want you to know how much we all depend on on what you and your colleagues are doing so thank you susan take care
1: Mm, thanks, Peter. Great to talk to you.
0: Susan Armiston in a war zone uh, in her hotel room on uh, this day. It's a Monday evening now in in uh, Lviv in Ukraine. And, um, you know, all I can say is to, uh, to Susan and all her colleagues from all the networks and the newspapers and the online organizations, um, they're doing a heck of a job under really... Really trying circumstances. Um, Okay, we're gonna take um, we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we'll get to uh, the COVID story. It's Monday, and where are we on all this? So we have a a short conversation with our good friend Dr. Lisa Barrett in Halifax. Um, That's coming up right after this. Peter Mansbridge, uh, you're listening to uh, the Bridge coming out of Stratford, Ontario, on this day, and you're listening on SiriusXM Channel One Six Seven Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform. One of the amazing things about today's technology is we can go from an interview with, Lviv in Ukraine, in a war zone, and the quality, the sound quality was was fabulous. Uh, so now we'll reach out to Halifax, all the way to Halifax, <laughs> and see, uh, see whether you never know with, um, you know, we, we gathered this information on Zoom and sometimes you get a good line, sometimes you don't get a good line, sometimes you have a good microphone, sometimes you don't have a good microphone. Um, nevertheless, wanted to check in with uh, this week, Dr. Lisa Barrett uh, to find out how uh, she sees things. Unfolding at the moment on the uh, COVID story. Now that yes. we're in this. Oh, man. Where's that coming from? Um, so let's see whether I can get this right. I think this. Uh, okay, wait a minute. I'll get it. <laughs> you know, if I can arrange to get Lviv, Ukraine, I should be able to arrange to get this. If I can just queue it up properly. Okay, here we go. Here's my conversation with Dr. Lisa Barrett on COVID. Where are we? So what am I to think of this? I, You know, I got a note from a friend who says they're having a progressive afternoon long birthday event for a friend. Um, a real outdoors, indoors, small group event. Hooray. What what are, what should I make of that? What does that tell us about where we are?
2: Well, it sounds like your friend uh, has some good ideas about getting back to life with COVID. Sounds like they're uh, interested in seeing more of their friends and family, but also aware that um, a full-on indoors plan is probably not in the cards in the middle of a respiratory season still. So, wow, good on your friend.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we should be aware that the friend is you and uh, we hope your your weekend event went well but if you're planning something like that what should you keep in mind now that we're in this you know we're not normal yet but we're heading in the right direction
1: yeah
2: I, I think it really very much is a time where it's silly to think shouldn't do anything that's not quite where we are. We, we have a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of tools. We can start to do things. But if you're somebody who has vulnerable people around you, or you have more than one household involved in getting together, then chances are you're going to want to keep an eye on the number of people and where you're getting together. It, right now, it's not about do or don't do. It's about do understanding the risk and how you might mitigate that and easy, easy things like understanding if your friends and family have any medical issues or are vulnerable people who are healthcare workers happen to be in a category where you want to keep them from getting COVID right now. Still, they still need to be at work. (laughs) So thinking about all those things before you plan something and then making an in-between plan for example, parts of your day may be inside together, but reducing the amount of time inside together, or changing the ventilation perspective, and then having some other bits that are outside and still fun and able to socialize—that's kind of an in-between plan, reducing risk, not getting rid of it.
0: Where would where would masks fit into that, or would they at all? <laughs>
2: And that depends. So if you've got a household that are always together, chances are the use of masks is not really all that helpful because you're you're inside and you're together a lot. If you're with people from another household, again, and and there's some people that are vulnerable in that mix, wearing some masks inside would be perfectly reasonable, especially if it's gonna be for a longer period of time. And so it's that in-between land, of no masks ever, or the mandated mask plan when anyone is together inside, that's kind of where we are right now. And that really does depend on people understanding what's risky, understanding what the risk is of the people around them, and then applying some measures that might make things better. For example, if you're inside and you're not going to mask and you have some folks there who may be at risk, perhaps you do it for a shorter period of time. Or with a little bit of distance or with some increased ventilation uh, as opposed to just go for it and really that's going to be a shorter term plan and by that I mean we're still in a respiratory virus season I've just had some kind of respiratory virus it wasn't COVID <laughs> but it, there are a lot of viruses around in the community right now and Combine that with COVID, um, and it means that people have the potential to get sick in large numbers until about the end of May. And so, what I'm thinking of is understanding more about where we're headed with COVID, but also getting past the respiratory virus season so that we're not filling our hospitals and other places and spaces with people who are ill for whatever reason.
0: Okay, help me with this one. As you can imagine, I get a lot of you know I get a lot of mail um, and with a lot of questions. And I thought this one would be worth, you know, asking you as opposed to me trying to answer it myself. It comes from uh, Gabriella Zilmer, who's uh, in Toronto, and she, I, she writes a big, long letter, and I can't read it all, but I will read a couple of sentences because it, it gets to the nub of it. Um, I truly get the sense that we are on our own now, and I'm trying to be educated to make sure I continue to make the right choices for me and my family. So, my question for your experts, not you, uh, what are we measuring now? And how will we know if we're heading into a new wave or into trouble? I do feel like the only thing we are concerned about, and perhaps have been concerned about, is our hospital capacity. So, there's the the question. What are we measuring now?
2: Yeah. So, we're in a bit of a difficult situation. I think a lot of our our governmental folks and our policy related folks are really trying to move us forward and in the traditional way hospitalizations and deaths have been what we said we always wanted to prevent to keep our healthcare systems viable and that's still a good thing to measure um, we are still measuring that across canada for sure but again that's a late indicator of what's happening and i would argue especially uh, I think that people who've had COVID would also be mindful of the fact that there's things that are more important than just death and hospitalization, not being well or being sick for quite a long time are also important. And we're not measuring that part of things in Canada right now. We don't have a great way of measuring absenteeism from work, for example, or uh, for measuring um, the amount of time people can't look after their family or friends or that they are feeling less than healthy. We don't have great measures of doing that in this country. And it probably matters. From a bunch of different diseases, and we've just never thought of it that way. So right now we do measure hospitalizations, we do measure deaths. We are still somewhat measuring cases, but to be honest, it's it's a terrible measure at the moment in most provinces because we're not testing enough to know what the community burden of COVID really is. And so for Gabriella's question of what should I know and and what should I be looking for, um, some provinces are starting to do wastewater surveillance, and that's an earlier indicator of when virus is going up in the community. I think that's probably a really good idea. Some provinces are still measuring um, home test-related COVID cases. Uh, For example, if you – but you have to – report that yourself we do that in nova scotia we've offered people the ability to do their own tests at home and then to register them and uh, that's been a useful thing for us those those numbers do tend to uh, go up a little faster than the hospitalizations and a little earlier so that's probably if you're not doing that in your province it's a, it's a good thing to do because to her point it gives people some tools to be able to understand how much virus is around in the community. So wastewater and self-reported testing are two things that we can easily look for that also might be more sensitive to the amount of just um, virus and, and unwellness in the community, as opposed to solely waiting till people have are hospitalized or, or dying. So what should you do? Keep an eye on those numbers. If she has access to tests, it's a useful thing still to do and to look for as a, as a metric or an indicator. And then um, until we're out of the respiratory virus season, is being a little more cautious and assuming that there's a fair bit of virus around, because there is, until we get past that May time point.
0: All right. My last um, question for this week uh, is feeling some sympathy for uh, parents with uh, kids under five, most of whom, cannot get their kids vaccinated yet because the vaccines haven't been approved yet for that age group. Um, Is there an issue there? Uh, Why does it seem to be taking so long?
2: It's a great question. Things always tend to take a little longer longer particularly in um, the age range where people aren't really um, just smaller adults. So 11, 12, 13 year olds, in some ways, physiologically, they are closer to the adult version of uh, humans, if you will. And and it it is a little easier to make sure you get all the side effects and and that the vaccine that you're going to use is actually appropriate in dose and in timing for those people. As you get further and further away from the adult age, the physiology is a little different and people do wanna make sure that the vaccines are working as well. They have different immune systems in under fives and that often can be a little piece of what's happening as well as the intrinsic, even beyond regulatory, but the intrinsic population um, need and want to make sure that things are very, very safe for very small children. Combine that part, which is true of any vaccine, not just COVID, with the fact that for under fives, this particular virus does seem to be quite benign, meaning that very few of those children end up very sick. The bar is very, very high to make sure that this is an exquisitely uh, safe and sensitive, but safe vaccine before we approve it. Because the risk to the individual child of getting very sick is small, and therefore we want the safest possible vaccine for them. So is the, if the question were, do you think there's an issue with safety in those under fives that's holding this up? I don't. I think it's more a product of us having a very high bar before approving things for under fives. Is it coming? I'm sure it's going to, um, but do I think we should rush it because otherwise we're never going to get out of the pandemic because the under fives aren't vaccinated? No, I don't think that's true, Uh, as long as we have great uptake in the older people, including the older children.
0: I think we'll leave it at that uh, for this week. Uh, There's a a tone of optimism uh, running through all of your answers. Uh, today and you know we've talked a lot over the last couple of years Uh, and so it's good to hear that tone for a change i hope it i hope it stays with us all
2: yeah you know um I think my biggest concern right now is that we just keep watching very carefully because the uncertainty level is so high Or what next virus is coming. I think I've said to you before, the virus is still dating and changing quickly, but we can live with what we've got right now if people do it well. You know what? A bit of masking, a bit of testing. And I see to think people are going to keep doing those things if they're available to them for the most part. And that does make me confident. Someone wrote me about an Edmonton grocery store the other day in Alberta, where things have gone away fairly quickly. And they said, you know what? Almost everyone is still masked. That gives me hope.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was at a leaf game the other night and everyone wasn't masked. Maybe, <laughs> maybe half were masked. Um, that, that worried me a little bit, but uh but we'll see. We'll see how things go. Dr. Barrett, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for this. Pleasure. Dr. Lisa Barrett. On on her last point, or second last point, um about variants Um I don't know whether you saw like I did last night, the sixty minutes program. Uh, with Dr. Uh, Rochelle uh, Walensky, the uh, director of the CDC in the United States. And um, she took the correspondent from CBS into uh, one of the labs of the CDC that is um, actually watching the whole variant situation. And the major technician who was a part of this uh, answering the question said, listen, right now we do not see a variant on the horizon of the Omicron nature. So that's good. I mean, that's a great situation to be in, but he underlined, at the moment, we don't see one. They can come along fairly quickly. But at the moment, they don't see one. Anything like Omicron or Delta before it. And, you know, that's all we're, that's all we're hoping for we can handle the uh, the little stuff and we're going to have to handle it probably for the rest of our lives. But it's the big stuff that causes the problems that we've witnessed over the last couple of years. So let's fingers crossed that we're at where we all hope we're at on this story. All right. That's going to wrap it up for, uh, for this day. Um, I, I hope you in, enjoyed the two conversations. I know I certainly did. Uh, with great admiration uh, for both of our guests today and the challenging roles that each of them are in. So I'm Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. Tomorrow we're going to, uh, on the Ukraine story, we're going to look at the refugee situation because it is overwhelming. They're approaching 2 million refugees out of Ukraine. And it's a country of only 41, 42 million. So what is... How is that going to be handled? I mean, it's, it. you know, we witness the pictures. What's the story behind the pictures? We'll talk to Sam Nutt from War Child Canada. And we'll have another element as well tomorrow. And I'll tell you about it tomorrow when I know what it is. Uh, Wednesday, of course, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce will be by. Thursday is uh, your turn. Friday, will be good talk when Chantal and Bruce join us. So we're going to leave it at that for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm -hmm.